You are listening to Analyze Asia with Bernard Leung, the podcast dedicated to interview thought leaders and industry players to understand and dissect the pulse of technology, media, and business in Asia. The show is sponsored by Ideal Workspace, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. You can visit their website, idealworkspace.com. Hi, Ben. Hi, how are you? I'm fine. We are talking to Ben Beharin from a principal for the firm Creative Strategies, but also a podcast that I've always been listening to called Tech Pinions. So we are, I think, 16-hour time difference. How have you been? Not too bad. We're having uh, some pretty good weather in, uh, in California. How about you guys? Well, in Singapore, it's pretty tropical, so we yep. tend to sweat it up. You've been kind of covering the consumer technology space, right? So can you tell me a little bit about what you do in Creative Strategies and also in Tech Pinions as well? Sure. So Creative Strategies is an um, industry analyst firm, very similar that IDC and Gartner and Forrester and a laundry list of other names are analyst firms. My, my firm, Creative Strategies, was started um, actually in 1969. It's one of the earliest uh, in the Valley. It was started only a few years after Pat McGovern started IDC. It wasn't quite focused on technology to start, but it evolved into that. And into around the 1980s, uh, Creative Strategies became one of the first firms to be very specific focused to personal computing. You know, the PC by you know, IBM, uh, Apple, and we have a very long and deep history in the, in the PC industry. So around 2000, um, when I joined, my focus was to only focus on the consumer space for computing. So at that time, you know, we were doing a lot of work with Dell and you know, HP, IBM, and, and the focus of PCs was all enterprise, corporate buyers. And around the time that I came, the conversation started shifting to how do we start to get consumers, pure consumers, not business buyers, engaged in, in buying PCs. And so that was my foray into analysis. And so in studying consumers, at the time, I looked at things like you know game consoles. Obviously, there was a lot of consumer-facing dot-com internet startups around that time that I was looking at. But, but my job was just to to dig into what consumers do with technology. And so my background was is actually in semiconductors. I started at Cypress Semiconductor in the late 90s. And so I had I would following the semiconductor industry, you know, like Intel very early on and spent a lot of time thinking through, you know, how's Moore's law going to play out in a number of different categories in, in bringing consumer, you know, computing to consumers in affordable ways and in what packages. And then, you know, s- since PCs, my focus has obviously moved into tablets, smartphones, wearables, smartwatches. I mean, any anything that's tech that an end consumer buys is sort of within my research scope today. And I've been following most of your contributions and also in both the writing and also in the podcast in TechPinion. So maybe you can tell us a little bit the audience about what TechPinions is about. So TechPinions is the website that we started just to have an outlet. I didn't really blog at Creative Strategies or write columns. I've actually written a column for for time for quite some time. And so what I wanted it was just get kind of a, a place out on the internet where it was my own voice and a number of other people. Um, but my goal was to you know not just cover news. I think news was overcovered, and and I wasn't really happy with a lot of the public content that was out there. And so I thought. 
you know, maybe I could get some smart people together and we could write more of a column on tech, maybe include more analysis, some of our research, some of our trend thinking and insights, and, and pack that into a daily column. So what you get now at Tech Opinions is every day you can come and you can get a different column from, from an industry analyst or, a, or somebody who I think is a smart leader that I've brought into writing for um, Tech Opinions. And, and again, it's not the news, but it is more of an insightful analytical take on the technology industry. So we write, you know, on, on we cover a bunch of different topics, but every day you can come and get a, a daily column on tech and we do a podcast every weekend. And we also have a subscription side of our site where people can subscribe and get much deeper analysis and data, more articles if they really like what we're doing and just want more of it. So you talk about the areas that you cover in consumer technology that extends from the personal computers, the PCs now to mobile and basically to wearables. So I guess yep. this is a, a Asia-focused podcast. What are the kind of questions for you that is most interesting thinking about Asia? Well, Asia has been an interesting one. You know, I mean, we can talk specifically about China or greater Asia as well, India, which includes into that. But you know, China's been sort of one of the bigger focuses for me. One, because China's the largest market just in terms of, you know, people on the planet. It's, it's also becoming the largest just in terms of consumer markets, right? So mm -hmm. the market in China itself is becoming fairly important to almost anybody in tech, just again, because of the size and scope. I've been tracking China for, you know, three to four years now. And it's been interesting to watch the shift. And, and when I was been tracking it prior, it was for PCs because we, we were looking at annual growth rates in PCs in China. We were studying how people use them in gaming cafes to watch videos. I mean, all of just kind of how PCs were taking out what home penetration was. And then we saw this shift towards smartphones start to happen. And we saw it start to happen pretty fast. And it became clear that one, that was the, one of the bigger indicators of why PC sales have been in continual quarter over quarter decline in China. But more importantly, that that it, they were moving to this very mobile-centric generation. And when I first started, as I was saying, you know, studying consumers in, in the early 2000s, once once we started to move into mobile, so feature phones, I started to take a hard look at Japan. And one of my core beliefs was that you know J Japan and the you know color screens that they had, the cameras, the internet to mobile devices was was really taking shape in Japan. And you had all these younger consumers who were, for the most part, mobile only doing all sorts of things from communicating to playing games on their mobile devices. And so my theory was, this is sort of, if I can get a glimpse of Japan and this kind of mobile, this mobile demographic around what they're doing with these feature phones, and these feature phones were increasing in their capabilities every year, may maybe I'll see what the future of all these consumer markets look like once we move past the PC. And what China's turned out to be is that that's been that same theory for me regarding smartphones, where Japan's smartphones are just pretty minimal when it comes to, to them as a market. So we watched China sort of blossom as this, this really this mobile first era. And, and the lessons that, that we're learning from that, I think, are profound, right? In, in the West, I, I wrote this article called, um, you know, why we in the West have a PC bias, you know? So mm -hmm. Western consumers default to, I want to do that on my PC. Now, that's for people who grew up with the PC, who are PC literate, you know, who are used to mouse and keyboard and all of the dynamics of that. And it's hard for them to see this transition that's happening to mobile in places like China, where people really don't need to use their PCs as much anymore, right? They're increasingly more and more mobile. And I think we're seeing that now with younger demographics in the West. But the point was, I, I've been looking at China as a place to understand what the future of consumer technology looks like by understanding what what happens in a mobile first era. Now, some of the big questions are, 
you know, is is what happens in China going to go anywhere else than China, right? That we don't know. We're not seeing the same messaging apps as a platform like WeChat is. We, we're not seeing that translate over into other markets yet. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. But I think the central question around China is how much of that is unique to the China market and how many of those lessons can we learn that are actually applicable in other markets like the West, um, other outside other parts of, a of, of Asia like India. So those are some of the bigger questions. But I think at a high level, what China has done is it's shown us the future of a mobile-only computing consumer base. And now we have to extract those insights and make them useful to each region where you know we're also selling mobile devices. So you also cover the interesting companies that are coming out of China. For example, I guess in the PC era, you would think about Lenovo as a company. And then now we'll be Correct. selling Xiaomi, for example. Correct. Yeah, I, I, because I, as a part of our business, I track mobile brand sales. So we do some tracking of phone sales and try to smartphone sales and try to estimate that to growth. So I do numbers for Coolpad, you know, Mizu, um, Xiaomi, um, you know, Oppo. Mm -hmm. So I track a lot of those brands. I track a lot of them, you know, brands in India. Indonesia, um, things like that. So, so I'm very familiar with that, just because you know I have to be in, in studying China the way the way that I do. But obviously, there's there's lots of dynamics around the Chinese market that I think are fascinating. And, and again, I think what we have to do is try to understand how much of that's unique to China and, and how much of that's going to go to other countries. And so those similarities and differences are key. It's interesting that you talk about the coverage of China that allows you to kind of extrapolate or, or some kind of making some deduction about the other markets in Asia, for example, India and Indonesia. In a mobile first world in these countries, which most people actually just basically access internet services through the smartphones, how do you find it different from in the West context where they started off with the PC buyers that you have just mentioned? Well, it's different in that mobile is sort of first and primary. You know, we, mm. we have this conversation that's existed, which is a very Western narrative called the post-PC era. And the post-PC era did not dis, uh, it did not, not include the PC. It included the PC, and the fundamental premise of the post-PC era was simply that when people had a smartphone, a tablet, a PC any number of devices that connected to the internet, they started splitting their time accordingly across those devices based on the task. So, you know, someone might be sitting at their PC and, or at their, at their, you know, in their couch on their tablet and, and an email might come in and they'd say, okay, I need to respond to this email, but I'm not going to respond in one paragraph. So I'm going to move to my PC because it has a good keyboard and an input mechanism and now I'm going to type out that email. And so having that level of familiarity of the task and then the best device for the task is kind of this multi-screen um, era that we have only of unique to the PC installed base, which is pretty big in China, but also US is, 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 is big and, and India, um, uh, not India, but, but Western Europe. Um, and so these are the sort of dynamics that play when you have a number of devices. So the difference is that these developed markets have any number of these devices to use and split their time about and access the internet. Whereas what we're seeing right in places like China and we'll see even more so in India and Indonesia is people who don't have PCs. They don't even know what they are. They don't have, you know, Internet cafes. Um, they don't have access to those devices. So they'll do everything on their smartphone. And so when you're doing everything on your smartphone, apps, uh, services, payments, identity, all of these things, all these interesting innovations start to happen because they're targeting a consumer 
on a phone, on a smartphone, where that's their only PC. And, and that's unique. And that's why we look at things that's happening in China, in India, because you're seeing innovations happen around this idea of mobile only. And, and we don't have that here. I mean, if you look in, you know, in the West, there's, not, there's only a handful of apps, and most of them are gaming, that, that you can say you can only do that on your smartphone, right? Most things still have a PC client or have a tablet app. And the difference is that you're, when, when you remove that equation, the PC, you start to see all this kind of different innovation. I think WeChat's a great example um, of something that is central to mobile, even though I know they have a, you know, a desktop uh, messaging app. But the point is that you're seeing all this innovation around mobile only, and because there's a demographic that is primarily mobile only. And because we don't have that in the West, we just don't see those same kinds of innovations. With regards to that then, how does the smartphone market look in Asia then? In 2015 this year? I mean, you look at the 2014 previously, right? So yep. how, how does it look like in the 2015? Do you, are you going to see a lot more Asian mobile OEMs coming with their own form of um, operating system based on Android? Or do you, are you going to see less of that, more consolidation from that viewpoint? I don't think we're going to see consolidation yet in this year. I mean, mm -hmm. I think if you look at the if you look at the numbers, you know, we're seeing pretty much every mainstream Chinese OEM that you can name moving up very rapidly. Right? There's mm -hmm. a couple of them: Huawei, ZTE, Xiaomi, right. um, Lenovo now, who are above 10 million units um, a quarter, and and that's pretty good, right? I mean, China China moves around 100 million smartphones per per quarter, and that's going up now. You know, a couple million, you know, give or take each quarter. Where probably by the end of this year, it'll be into the you know 100 115s ish uh, in in Q4. So that's that's a lot of volume. Largest smartphone market on the planet by far right now, and so you can have all of these local vendors who can who can sell five million, eight million, ten million, fifteen million units a quarter and actually have a pretty healthy business. Now the question is, how long does that? last, especially when you look at, you know, Mizu's deal with Alibaba, which makes a lot of sense because in this next era for smartphones, price is going to be central, right? For us to get beyond the, you know, mid 500 or so million smartphone users that there are um, in China, to get to, you know, 800, 900, price is the central defining factor, right? To move smartphone adoption beyond tier one through three China and out into more rural and, and village type areas, price is going to be key. So when price is key for handsets, you're not really making money on those handsets. Therefore, the services providers are the ones who are best positioned to monetize the hardware because they're, they're actually not monetizing the hardware. They're monetizing the service component. This is exactly what Xiaomi wants to be, even though they're making profits on, on the hardware today. Mm. So that is the sort of next evolution of this. I think you're going to see Tencent either get into the handset business or I think you're going to see them partner very closely with the handset company and deeply integrate their services across a number of different products. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you've, you've, you've heard about a number of, of, of companies out there, QHU and others, who are starting to make these, these partnerships with hardware because, again, the cost to make really good smartphones or tablets has come down to the point where if you're a service provider, you can just sell it at cost, but it's a mechanism to drive value to your services, which is really where you make money. Mm -hmm. So while I still think we'll see 
this mix of brands over this over the next few years, I think you're going to see some of those brands, like Mizu did, start to align with service providers and where they'll make the hardware and maybe take a small portion of the services revenue. But but it's really going to be more of a hardware as a service model than it is profiting on hardware, which was the business model we used to have for most companies that I think is going away. Mm. That is interesting. You pointed out. You talk about Meizu, Oppo, and all these China OEMs into mobile, and they are all using Android. To plug your brain a little bit further, since you cover PC in the PC era, due to the operating system wars, Microsoft managed to edge out Apple and became the dominant player. And of course, the hardware gets commoditized. I mean,、yep. Google is adopting exactly the same playbook now, but it、yep. seems to have a little bit of problems. Even though it 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 gets a lot of a big market share across most Asian markets, I mean, they're running Android One in India, Indonesia with Micro Max in China. There's a fourth version of Android. It doesn't seem、yep. to have a a capability of monetizing on top of that. What, in your opinion, what do you think Google's problem is going to be on that front in well, in, I, in Asia as itself? Yeah. I mean, I think I think Google's fundamental problem, you know, in in Asia is that they're they're just not really relevant there, right? Their services, in terms of Google Play Store, Google Maps, you know, to access those, you have to use a VPN, or you have to have have, have gone through all the the hooks to install some services secondhand, because most of them aren't preloaded on, onto phones. So I think Google's challenge is that they don't really benefit much from China as a company.、Mm. Now, Android Open Source does. Because you've got people again, like like Alibaba and Xiaomi is a great example of somebody who took the essence of Android and made it their own, and and is looking to build on top of that. Right? They have an app store, they have a bookstore, they got a game store, they've got all these things they can put on top of Android to add value that drives continual transactions in their ecosystem. Because essentially, if you look at what iOS is, if you look at what what Google wanted Android to be, if you look at what WeChat is and WhatsApp, Line, these are all transaction engines. You know, they're trying to get you to spend some amount of money either every day, every week, every month, and that's the model that is the most interesting one going forward. Which is, you know, how can you build these transaction engines around some sort of unique differentiator? And increasingly, that's going to become services. Because again, I think we're we're in a phase where People could make hardware and make money off it in this first phase of mobile. I think we're moving into the second phase of mobile, where, to your point, people who run Android is going to be a simple race to the bottom commodity. The only way for them to survive on those platforms is to become services providers. And so, while Google also wants to be a services provider, they're not going to cover the whole gamut of services because everybody's going to want to compete and compete on services with Google. So, I, I think their challenge is that. I think it's two things. I think it's one: they have to evolve Android to also maintain the you know little over a billion people they have right now on Google's version of Android, right? And so most of those are pretty profitable customers to Google because they're they're still people that were in this first phase that might have spent three four hundred dollars for a phone, so they're not your sort of low end consumers.、Mm-hmm. And so the challenge for Google is to keep Android relevant for them, their their most aggressive, most mature existing. Android user base, and also make it relevant for a farmer in Africa, which is going to be part of the next two billion people we're going to add to the internet via smartphones,、mm-hmm. and that's that's a real challenging dynamic because how does a platform 
simultaneously appeal to someone who's never used a computer before. It's their first one. And also your most aggressive, most demanding consumers on a platform. And so I don't know how they straddle that fence. This is why essentially Xiaomi, this is where Cyanogen can come into play. This is where perhaps Firefox OS or any number of alternatives can come in Mm -hmm. and say, well, we're going to go focus on these first-time customers. We're not going to try to monetize hardware. We're going to build software and services that appeal to these types of new customers because maybe Google can't do it. Or maybe Google says, we're going to ignore these first you know, billion that we have that are pretty profitable and go after this next two billion. And so somewhere, if they can't straddle this fence, there's going to be a hole. And so what we look for then is then who are these companies that are going to go fill those holes? And that's where I think, again, you know, Xiaomi is in an interesting spot. That's where I think service providers like Alibaba or others that are coming out of India now, local search, things like that can become interesting and, and sort of fill those holes and serve new customers in ways that Google just can't because it's really hard to be all things to all people, Google, but Android can if it, start, if it continues to so in that sense, where do you think Google will take Android in the next two years? Given that there is mounting challenges from Cyanogen, and I know that Microsoft has recently invested in Cyanogen, and also the shifting loyalties of Asian OEMs. I mean, Samsung has been having a lot of agreements with Google in terms of Android, but they still want to promote their own Tizen OS. So where where, where would be Google's sweet spot? I mean, in China, there's no way, but in India, no. in other parts of Asia... Google is relatively well-known in these regions. So should they just focus on the other markets and totally ignore China or they have to figure another way to enter? No, I, I mean, I think the, the challenge they have from China is that companies like you know Alibaba, even Tencent mm. and Xiaomi are going to try to take their solutions, their hardware, their software or their services or any combination of those and they're going to try to go into areas where Google's competing, you know, like India, like Indonesia, like Brazil, things like that. Now, Xiaomi's been very careful to say, yes, when we go to these markets, we will use Google services. But I- I'm not sure I believe how long that will last because inevitably they're not going to want to give money to Google when they're not going to make them any money on the hardware. So they're going to have to be making money from the services business, and a lot of those core services might be things that Google's competing in. So there's going to be a real tension there that I think they're going to face as they expand into India. And so that's that's Google's sort of challenge, is they need to make their services continually more relevant to those consumers. But again, you know, if you're a farmer in Africa and you don't really leave your village, why do you need Google Maps? Right? You don't. Right? Maybe you need search, but there might be any number of people that can solve that for them um, in this next phase. So I think one of the, the challenges they have is that, again, Facebook, WhatsApp, WeChat, these things are much better positioned for this next era of smartphones where, you know, where people just want to do messages, maybe play some games, get some entertainment. Those platforms are much better positioned than Google for this next phase. So I think in this next era... Google's very challenged from a competitive standpoint. That's why I sort of use these eras to break out mm. where we're at. You know, they've got a little they've got a little over a billion people right now on their version of Android, and that's a solid base. And I think they need to keep that base happy. But competing for this next 
billion, two billion is going to be extremely competitive. And that's, I think, going to be their biggest challenge. Because right now, I don't think their services outside of perhaps YouTube and some search are really that relevant. And more importantly, these customers aren't high revenue per user customers. You know, they're not people searching the web trying to buy things all of the time. So from an advertiser standpoint, this, you know, a farmer in Africa might not be all that interesting or even all that valuable as you know how many of, of the smartphone users they have in this first era of their of their current you know sort of little over one billion user base so i think the monetization of this next era is going to even challenge their business model even more mm -hmm. so I, I, that's why i think i'm still optimistic that you know google has some life left in them but i'm, I'm cautious in that i think I think they really have some mounting challenges that they've never really faced before, and I'm not sure how they deal with those things. And I think that's going to be, you know, we're in defining moments for Google to not just sort of just be what Microsoft was with Windows in PCs in the tw first 20 years, because search is over 70% of the revenue. Mm -hmm. And if they're just a one-trick pony around search, I think they're going to be really, really challenged to, to maintain a dominant force as a company over the next 20 years. And you also see Facebook is positioning itself for the next 1 billion with the internet.org initiative as well. So they are also trying to garner that. And actually it's interesting because in Indonesia, people go into internet without realizing they were on internet. They will tell you that I have never surfed the internet, but I use Facebook and Twitter. Right, so right, So you're getting exactly. that kind of customers the next one billion would also make it very difficult for them. So wouldn't that be easier for them to just do something like the Chrome operating system model that they were they have been advocating? I mean, I think so. I've always sort of had this question, you know, what is, you know, what what does Android look like five years from now, right? Because so much could change. Mm. But but if you make that case, which is that they should just take Chrome and build some web apps and sort of move that environment, which I think is a, is a very logical scenario. You also make the case that then Firefox, you know, OS is doing the same thing, right? In fact, right. they're already deploying that in markets and they're building a web app ecosystem and a web app store. And so unfortunately, a lot, while it makes sense for Google to do that, there's not much differentiation for them in that environment. Because again, if, if, if everybody's making web apps, then sort of all you need is a browser that supports web apps. There's almost no sort of unique Google sauce there. I mean, they could figure something out, but there really isn't any unique Google sauce there like like Android has been from somewhat of a lock-in standpoint. Mm -hmm. And so, so that's, while I think that's logical and makes a lot of sense, I, I don't think that that solves Google's problems by itself. Ah, okay. We talk a lot about Google, but what about Apple in China? They have their stunning first quarter growth in 2015. Do you see them able to sustain that growth with threats coming from Xiaomi, Oppo, Meizu, who might slow iPhone growth in China? I do. I think that Apple's continuing to play a very different game than those companies are. <clears throat> I think, you know, Xiaomi's done a very good job branding building buzz and creating some of the same ecosystem elements like uh, me cloud and me store and kind of all of the little little ancillary uh, cloud points that they've put together in their ecosystem but i think they appeal their appeal only goes so high i think you know if you note a lot of chinese brands are having trouble getting over 3000 rmb in terms of price mm -hmm. because it's around that price point that people then just start to say i might as well just go get an iphone right so the iphone is the most aspirational product, but yes, it is out of reach of a lot of customers um, in China. So Apple, while they're continuing to see, I think, tremendous growth, I think China 
at least in this quarter, thanks to Chinese New Year, we'll probably Apple will sell more smartphones there um, in this current quarter, the March quarter, than they did in the U.S. So it'll be the first time that China was their biggest volume player per quarter. Now, that's not going to continue. At some point in time, I think China is Apple's biggest market every quarter. I just don't think 2015 is yet. So I think in 2015, we'll see a couple quarters, perhaps Q4, and then also this this first quarter where they sell more smartphones in China than they do um, in the United States. But that market, I think, is becoming increasingly important to Apple. I also think the Apple Watch is going to do very, very well. I think China is going to be one of the biggest markets day one for the Apple Watch. And so I think, like I said, they're, I think they're playing very different games. They're appealing to, they're, they're not willing to sort of come down into that, we want to be cheaper and compete with those brands at the $300, $400 level. Um, even in the secondary market, if you look at smartphone sales of like the 5S in the gray market, they're still over $500. I think the you know, last average I looked was like 580 something like that. Um, and so I think that Ch- Chinese consumers understand um, that kind of emotional, aspirational brand. And I think in terms of smartphones, Apple's the only one that has that. I mean, um, now, but I mean, Apple is kind of viewed as a luxury product. It's viewed more like right. a LVMH rather than a consumer electronics brand like Samsung. Right. I mean, isn't well, that the, the kind of, I mean, in, in, in your view, is is the... Is the is because Apple has man- managed to kind of move up the ladder chain as a brand. That's why even with all these knockoffs against them, people still aspire towards an Apple brand. Yeah, that, that, that's correct. And I think that's, that's part of their strategy. Mm. I think that's what they want to be in China. And I think what we're learning when we look at just these volumes is that there's a lot more people willing to make the sacrifices that they need to make if they can't afford it day one, right? So save and skimp and maybe skimp meals. Mm. I've heard of people skipping meals to save money to buy iPhones. So, you know, they're willing to do those things for that brand. You don't see them willing to do those things for Xiaomi, right? And we didn't, we never really saw them willing to do it for Samsung. And, and, And when I've tried to study, you know, Chinese consumers and I've looked at, you know, kind of What's the dynamic between, you know, a brand like Xiaomi and Apple? You know, Sh- Xiaomi's position themselves as kind of that cool, tech, techie, I'm on my, my way up kind of a brand, right? If I'm seen with a Xiaomi product, I'm, I'm upwardly mobile. I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. But once you get an iPhone, it's kind of like I've made it, right? I've got the pinnacle of the devices that I want. And, and that's the, the big difference, I think. And that's also why I think it's hard for Chinese brands to get over 3,000 RMB is just because of that aspirational gap that Apple has. Now, I'd love to see Apple obviously try to figure out how to compete around the same price points or so with Xiaomi. Right now, they're doing it with secondary market prices, even though the 5S is still a little higher than that. It's close enough you know, to a $400, you know, $450 phone, competitive phone. But obviously... It would be interesting to see if they try to move down into that second tier by not being quite at the same price, but but maybe a hundred, hundred and fifty dollars more. And and obviously one of the challenges that Apple has is they face an import tax tax that's upwards of two hundred dollars in the market. So their phones are that much more expensive. I mean, arguably, if there was no import tax for Apple and their phones were priced similarly as they were here, meaning 650, 750, right? Not not a thousand dollars for a for a, a six plus, they could actually sell even more. Mm. So why is Samsung floundering in China then? So Samsung, I think, is facing a number of different pro- problems. I think, num- you know, number one, when Samsung entered the mobile market, you know, they actually came in with more of an affordable 
type of a play around feature phones. And so they, they, they then tried to move up into an aspirational brand, and they, and they almost got there. I mean, they, there is some value still held around, um, you know, prices of Samsung devices in China. Um, but I think one of the most interesting things that for me is about a company like Xiaomi in China and also a company called Micromax in India mm. is that I, I feel like there's this sense of local pride starting to sort of bubble up around these countries who say, look, that's, that smartphone came from my country. And so I'm proud of that brand. I'll support that brand. And so I think as Xiaomi gets better and can appeal to local consumers, they have this what I call home field advantage in that not only are they a local brand trying to, to appeal to local customers, they're also integrating local services better. And so if you're Samsung, it's kind of hard to compete with a brand that you know, people are starting to say, hey, look, I prefer them over you. They make just as good phones, and it's pretty much the same operating system. So there's very little differentiation other than Samsung's brand, which I think is being hit, uh, is starting to be chipped away at mm -hmm. with, with, the, uh, with the rising quality of companies like Oppo and, and, uh, and um, Xiaomi, for example, even Huawei. Um, doing great design, and I think those those are some of those dynamics that's that's chipping away at Samsung's competitive advantage that they used to have, and and I think more importantly the integration with local services and the and the, the unique localization and customization of those local services, some of the UIs, some of the interesting stuff Xiaomi is doing. Samsung just can't do that. You know that's not the kind of company that they are. They're not really a software company to build all these interesting, unique local software and local services. And so they're being really challenged by these local companies who do it better and then more and then they're being squeezed from the top end where Apple's brand is more prestigious than theirs. And so they're kind of just getting squeezed in all these markets from both ends. Actually I wanted to ask this question because Apple done a very successful marketing campaign to kind of label Samsung as the copycat. Mm -hmm. And they box them into that high-end and squeeze them out of the high-end market. They are doing the same to Xiaomi. Do you think that that will work or it may not, it may backfire on? I don't think that that's as sustainable as a strategy for them mm. regarding Xiaomi. I mean, I don't think, you know, I, I don't think that for the most part, Chinese consumers buy into that. And as you look at a, at a number of their devices, you know, it's sort of clear that they're not really copying as many things as people think. It's gotten some attention. I think it's, it's, it's helped Xiaomi's sort of brand, if you will, because any attention from the media, Western media, etc., is good for Xiaomi. It's good for their brand. But yeah, I, I think they're, again, I think they're playing different games. I think Samsung was trying to eke into premium territory and Apple squandered that. I don't think Xiaomi is playing that same game. I mean, they're, they're sort of kind of like your everyday, every man's type of affordable premium smartphone. And I think that's been sort of the basics of their success. And, uh, and yeah, I, I don't think that being, being positioned as a copycat is going to really impact much for Xiaomi. I mean, I think you're, mm. you know, they, they did post their first quarter over quarter decline in, Q, in the, the holiday quarter of last year, primarily because of the new iPhones, but they're still on a steady trend upwards. So I, I don't think that's, mm. that's an approach. And like I said, I think, I think they're playing very different games. I see. I mean, coming back to Samsung, do you see Samsung ending up in the fate of Sony? Recently, I mean, they just spin off. Uh, Sony has right. used to be one of the top consumer electronics company. I still remember the days I was using a Walkman. And now they are spinning off the video, audio, and all the consumer electronics part. Because right. Do you think that Samsung will go in that direction? Well, I think, think it's certainly a possibility. I don't think their situation is that dire quite yet. But I do think it's possible that at some point in time, 
their display business, their semiconductor business, you know, those types of products that are first and foremost right now making a bunch of their money might get spun off and, and sort of repackaged or even the, the mobile sites. But I don't think they're quite at that. I think you might see them acquire perhaps some more local brands like they're not going to acquire Xiaomi, but, but maybe they acquire Micromax or maybe they acquire Intec in India or maybe they acquire Oppo or something like that. And not to take over that brand to make them Samsung brands, but to sell their components to those. Because Samsung, we have to understand about Samsung, is Samsung is essentially a components company, right? They sell microprocessors, they sell memory, they sell displays, they sell components. And for them, their front-facing brand has always been their mechanism to sell components in volume. So if that becomes threatened, which is what's being threatened today, it makes sense that they start to say, well, maybe I'm going to buy some of these other brands and I'll just have them use my components. And now I'll get that volume I need back in components from a number of brands, not just mine. So there's things they can do. They're in a very different cash position than Sony. But you're right. There are a lot of similarities to Samsung to where Sony was, you know, six, seven, eight years ago. And, you know, we, we could be talking about this in 10 years and see that, yeah, they en end up having to break, break things up. But I'm not sure that's the inevitable fate for them. It's certainly one possible scenario, but I think there are some things they could do to keep themselves out of having to split up the uh, groups of the company. Mm. So I guess recently they acquired Luke Pay. Is that a counter to Apple Pay? I mean, what's Samsung's play with that then? It is. I mean, that's essentially their, 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 their hope. It's a very different kind of a, of a technology in that it's, not, uh, it's still contactless, but it's essentially just sending the information of your credit card across. It's not encrypting that the same way that Apple does. There, there's some nuances that you, know, you kind of have to dig into. But, but yes, essentially, they want to be in the payments business. I mean, obviously, we're moving to this, this environment where mobile and mobile payments and mobile identity is central. And so th that's them hoping to compete and be relevant because, again, they, Samsung's still a big player in the United States and, and, and in Europe from a shipment standpoint, even in India. They're still the number one in India. They might not be you know, in a quarter or two, but, but they still are now. And they need to be relevant, particularly in the West, amongst payments because we as this this country the united states is rapidly moving to mobile payments as a thanks to apple pay but because we've, we're moving to chip and pin because we're having uh, fault liability for insurers and banks shift this october everybody's sort of building these new infrastructure places to take place and so that's where we're seeing the shift happen so samsung just has to do it on the basis of competition for, to be relevant in markets like the West. And loop pay is, is how they believe they're going to do it. Mm. And I think I just received the news today. I think Google has just acquired SoftCut. It was either an acquisition or mm. some assets. I, I'm not sure. I, yeah, I saw yeah, correct, part correct. of it. Now I just have one more question on Cyanogen. I mean, Microsoft, they invested in Cyanogen. Do you see them taking Cyanogen and go into the Asian market with the Windows phone in that context? Well, so I, I'm not sure that that's their end play. I think, you know, Cyanogen is interesting because, again, right now, while you can buy a OnePlus with Cyanogen and it actually has Google services on it, that's probably not going to be the case going forward. I think Microsoft is interested in perhaps partnering with Cyanogen so that you get Microsoft services, maybe it's Skype, maybe it's Bing, Maps, etc., preloaded on that device instead of Google's. So mm. while whoever is is that uses cyanogen in markets like India, uh, perhaps even China, um, others, 
that you'll actually get Microsoft's suite of services on there and not just and, and not Google's. And so their play with Cyanogen, I feel, is not a Windows Phone play, hardware play, or OS play. It's a services play. And so for them, because again, I think they're evolving to be a services company. So for them, building and bundling those services and getting new people to experience not just Office, but other things they'll make, right? And, and integrate those on their services. Bing and Cortana is a good example, which I think you could see come to Cyanogen. It, it, it just makes sense. Those are the kind of things that they want people using Microsoft services for because Microsoft's going to continually make money on those services. So that goes back to, again, the shift from hardware to services. So I think Microsoft's looking at that as, let's bundle our services on Cyanogen and empower Cyanogen to go empower other devices with our services and, in essence, compete in this next era very differently than they did this first era. Mm, I think there were a lot of rumors coming out about Microsoft bundling its services with the new Samsung's Galaxy S6, I guess. Right, and I think that was just preloading, not all services, but I think it was around Office mm. um, because Microsoft wants to be relevant, obviously, in the, or Samsung wants to be relevant in the enterprise in selling you know, galaxies where they've sort of taken a big hit because of the IBM Apple deal. And that's one way to do it is to actually have your, you know, just bundle office on there. So it just makes it easier for an IT buyer, say. Yeah. On that, I am, I read an article written by you about the PC growth coming back. Right. I guess in the market where now things are disintermediate by the smartphone and the tablet, how do you see that return for growth? happening well it's interesting right i mean i think what what i tried to do in that article was just say you know is there a scenario where pcs could grow again i mean again if you look at asia it's like double digit negative it's, it's just abysmal and, it, and it's not going anywhere in india Pen pc penetration in india is less than 10 percent, right so so not even 120 ish million people very very low and i think when you look at those markets, you say, okay, well, is there a scenario where PCs could grow again? And I think that's sort of been a central question that a lot of us have focused on. And it's one of those things where that the PC is better at than smartphones. And so, so then the question is, does a market that's mobile only eventually move up and say, you know, I've reached the limitations of my smartphone. I don't care how big the screen, six, seven inches, but I've reached the limitations of my smartphone for what I want to do. And so now it's time for me to upgrade and get my first PC. In that, you can also make the case that that's a tablet, right? That, that perhaps a 10-inch or a 12-inch tablet becomes what they graduate up to. But, but I think it's interesting to think about, you know, is there a point in time where mobile only reaches its limits? And I'm speculating. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But if there is a time where mobile reaches its limits, then a more capable device like a, call it a tablet or even a PC, could then see growth again I don't know how big, but it could then see growth again if, if the market, a good portion of that market realizes that they want to do more than they can with their smartphones. Ah, so you, you think that there is this situation where maybe there may be a fusion between a tablet and a PC. I mean, that's what Microsoft Surface was trying to do, right, isn't it? Right, right. Well, and I think you have to remember, right, the, 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 the interface has to be simpler. I mean, right, you're not going to teach somebody in India who's never used a PC and they're not going to all of a sudden become PC literate. Mm. So, you know, and learn how to touch type, right? So, so the interfaces have to get simpler, right? Maybe it's a Chromebook. Maybe a Chromebook is kind of what they graduate up to. But, but I think, you know, sitting in the middle of what does it look like if people reach the limits of their smartphones 
and want to do more, you know, is an interesting scenario to say, is there a case for a larger screen computer? Is there a case for more precise input mechanisms for long form precision editing, typing, things like that? And that's, that's my point of that article is that's the environment where I see it happening. If they reach the limits of their smartphone and realize they want to do more, that's when they'll start looking for the device that is more capable, which is either you know a tablet or perhaps a, a full-blown PC. That would be an interesting world to look at. Well, I guess my penultimate question to you is the Apple Car. Is it really true? Do you think it's true? Well, this is always one of those, if there's smoke, you know, there's, there's fire kind of a thing. And enough evidence has come out that they're certainly looking at what it might look like if Apple makes a car. I mean, I've, I've always sort of believed that, you know, Apple's R&D that they sort of sit down and say, look, what would it look like if we made this and kind of insert any tech product here? Because they essentially want to try and make things that, that might be interesting to say, what would Apple's process, creative design, software, et cetera, look like if they made one of these things and, and what they could learn from it, right? And I think the, the Johnny Ive profile piece in The New Yorker, he, he makes an interesting point where he says, it takes invention after invention after invention to discover something new. And that's very insightful, I think, into Apple's process where they say, let's try to make this. Let, let's, let's tackle a challenge we've never tackled before. You know, like prior to the iPhone, they tried to make the iPad, right? They, they were debating mm. whether to go to market with a tablet, but, but they tried to make, they said, what would it look like if Apple made a tablet? And in that process, they ended up coming up with a lot of stuff that manifested itself into the iPhone. So with the car, the question's not necessarily, will they bring a car to market, even though you can argue there's reasons to do so, volume, size, ASP, I mean, all this stuff that, that's, that fits in line with Apple's philosophies. But what will they learn from trying to make a car? You know, what, what kind of things will they learn trying to make batteries better or trying to machine new components for parts of the car? And, and then more importantly, how might those things that they learn either discover brand new products that Apple's never thought of yet or impact current ones in positive ways? So that's that's the R&D process. And so while I think that's a healthy thing and they're absolutely doing it, and I'm sure they're working on crazier stuff that we haven't even found out about yet, I think that goal is to sort of discover something new or see once they've overcome that challenge, how can that now impact other products or lead to new ones? Mm, okay. Well, I think that's a very nice way to close the conversation for today. Ben, definitely... I thank you for coming and really share your insights and definitely this will not be the last time you'll be on this show. But for my audience, how do they find you? Uh, so best way, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter, <clears throat> at Ben Beharin. Um, and then obviously you can read every Monday is my, my column at Tech Opinions. Um, and I write for subscribers probably two, three times a week, additional analysis. So uh, lots of different ways to find me, but m m easiest way to follow me is just on Twitter. Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show. We'll speak another time. Yeah, thanks. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.